In the culture that we live in, the culture that we live in, the uh, greatest sin that a person could, can commit is suggesting that I'm right and you're wrong about any subject. Uh, that is the most offensive thing you can say to someone. There's this, uh, it's, uh, th- this theological theory that's called the Deep Valley Theory that says that we're, as Christians, we're going toward God through a deep valley, and then on the one side of us, maybe are Buddhist, and then beside them in a deep valley are Hindus, and, and beside them in a deep valley are people who are in Islam, and we're all going our way toward God, and we're all going to reach God, we're just going in different paths toward God. And that the most offensive, most obnoxious thing that I could possibly say to a person is, is that the, my way of getting to God is better or superior than your way. That comes across to people as uh, arrogant, know-it-all, and just a generally bad attitude. John MacArthur said, uh, said this. He said that uh, the most offensive claim that can be made in the realm of religion is this. There is only one God, one Savior, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, one way of salvation. All other religious claims are lies, deceptions, doctrines of Satan and demons that lead people to eternal hell, along with all the immoral, irreligious, atheistic, hedonistic, naturalistic unbelievers. That that is the most offensive thing that you could ever say to a person. That I'm right. And you're wrong. Now, that would work fine if what we were talking about was taste. If I'm saying, okay, any idiot that doesn't like Dr. Pepper is wrong. Because that's something that's subjective. Some of you don't like Dr. Pepper. Some of us do. Some of us, we even take it further. And it's with things that that we take very important. Like... For example, that I, I use here a lot joking around is college football. We say, uh, you know, I'm an Alabama football p- fan. Anybody that's not for Alabama is stupid. Now, I don't need any amens for that. Let's just be real about this for a minute. Let's, okay, close the doors. Don't tell anybody I said this. You don't know anybody on those teams. It doesn't matter to you if Alabama wins or loses. It's not a big deal. You're cheering for laundry. You don't know any of those people. I'm sorry if that's offensive, but you're cheering for a bunch of teenagers who are playing a child's sport, and we're losing our brothers and sisters in Christ over something that doesn't really matter that much. So if I... Now, don't tell anybody I said that. But here's the reality. With stuff like taste, with stuff that's opinions... That would be absolutely right. If I were to say, Garrett, you're a total idiot for cheering for Tennessee. I mean, have they won a game in the last three years? I don't even know. How many coaches are you going to go through? I mean, seriously. If I were to say that, that's that's opinion. That, That has no basis in reality. But if somebody's up on the roof of this building playing at the edge and I say, Hey, man, be careful. You're going to fall off and die. That's a different scenario, right? If what we're dealing with is objective truths, then that's a totally different scenario. And I want to I 
share with you a video that, that I have found that's going to be very strange because the person who is speaking in this video, some of you may know, some of you may not, his name is Penn. He's from the, the comedy troupe Penn and Teller. Uh, and um, it's probably the first and last time anything from him will ever be played in this church. But I wanted you to share the viewpoint of an atheist. So if we could play that. In the culture that we live in, the culture that we live in, the uh, greatest sin that a person can, can commit is suggesting that I'm right and you're wrong about any subject. Uh, that is the most offensive thing you can say to someone. There's this, uh, it's, uh, th- this theological theory that's called the Deep Valley Theory that says that we're, as Christians, we're going toward God through a deep valley, and then on the one side of us maybe are Buddhists, and then beside them in a deep valley are Hindus, and, and beside them in a deep valley are people who are in Islam, and we're all going our way toward God, and we're all going to reach God we're just going in different paths toward God. And that the most offensive, most obnoxious thing that I could possibly say to a person is, is that the, my way of getting to God is better or superior than your way. That comes across to people as uh, arrogant, know-it-all, and just a generally bad attitude. John MacArthur said, uh, said this. He said that... Uh, The most offensive claim that can be made in the realm of religion is this. There is only one God, one Savior, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, one way of salvation. All other religious claims are lies, deceptions, doctrines of Satan and demons that lead people to eternal hell, along with all the immoral, irreligious, atheistic, hedonistic, naturalistic unbelievers, that that is the most offensive thing that you could ever say to a person, that I'm right and you're wrong. Now, that would work fine if what we were talking about was taste. If I'm saying, okay, any idiot that doesn't like Dr. Pepper is wrong, because that's something that's subjective. Some of you don't like Dr. Pepper. Some of us do. Some of us, we even take it further, and it's with things that that we take very important. Like, for example, that I I use here a lot joking around is college football. We say, uh, you know, I'm an Alabama football fan. Anybody that's not for Alabama is stupid. Now, I don't need any amens for that. Let's just be real about this for a minute. Let's, okay, close the doors. Don't tell anybody I said this. You don't know anybody on those teams. It doesn't matter to you if Alabama wins or loses. It's not a big deal. You're cheering for laundry. You don't know any of those people. I'm sorry if that's offensive, but you're cheering for a bunch of teenagers who are playing a child sport, and we, we, we're, we're losing our brothers and sisters in Christ over something that doesn't really matter that much. So if I... Shh, now, don't tell anybody I said that. But here's the reality. That with stuff like taste, with stuff that's opinions, that would be absolutely right. If I were to say, Garrett, you're a total idiot for cheering for Tennessee. I mean, have they won a game in the last three years? I don't even know. How many coaches are you going to go through? I mean, seriously. If I were to say that, that's, 
That's opinion. That, that has no basis in reality. But if somebody's up on the roof of this building playing at the edge and I say, Hey man, be careful, you're going to fall off and die. That's a different scenario, right? If what we're dealing with is objective truths, then that's a totally different scenario. And I want to I share with you a video that, that I have found that's going to be very strange because the person who is speaking in this video, some of you may know, some of you may not, his name is Penn. He's from the, the comedy troupe Penn and Teller. Uh, and um, it's probably the first and last time anything from him will ever be played in this church. But I wanted you to share the viewpoint of an atheist. So if we could play that. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks, and you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position. After I was all done, big guy, probably about my age, big guy, and. Um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, uh, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. And I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth 
telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. Now before, I, I, one of the things that, that jumps at me is that uh, this guy earned the right to be able to to share with Penn uh, this New Testament and talk with him about a little bit about the gospel. And it clearly made an impact on him. It looked to me like he, he had tears in his eyes as he talked about it. And so one of the things that, that I think that if that same guy had walked up to that, that comedian and said, you're going to hell and flicked a Bible at him, it would not have had an impact on him, right? He had the, he, because of the goodness that he showed, because of the kindness that he showed, he, in that very short window, earned the right to preach the gospel to him. And it had an impact. And so one of the things that Paul is doing as he writes this letter to the church of Galatians is he is reestablishing the fact that he has the right to speak truth into their lives. And that's really important. Because if somebody that you don't know comes up and just starts telling you how you're supposed to do things, it's not going to impact you. I can give you an example. This happened to me this week. I was at the YMCA and I was working out. And there was a dude there that was, uh, he, you know, he was dressed kind of goofy because he was kind of in that bro mode. So he had on his, his spandex shorts and he had on a wife beater t-shirt and he had on a, a lifting belt, even though he wasn't doing anything that required a lifting belt. And he had on these gloves and those guys that have worked out with me know how much I love weightlifting gloves. And he was kind of trolling around in the, in the gym. And I'm working out, and he walks up to me. I don't know this guy from Adam and starts correcting my form. He's like, hey, man, you need to get your back more. And I'm, I'm kind of look at him like, headphones, I'm sorry, just please go away. And, and, you know, trying to be polite. And then a few minutes later, he does the same thing. And I'm, again, I'm like, yeah, um, thank you, have a nice day. And then as I'm leaving and I got my headphones out, he comes up to me and says, hey, man. If you're looking for a personal trainer, I am available for you. Would you like a card? And I said, no, thank you, buddy. I, I appreciate it. And then he said, I can help you lose that fat you got there in the middle. 
So the first thing that goes through my mind is this is the worst salesperson ever in the history of forever. Because you just walked up and called me fat. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so and you, instinctively when somebody says something, like you kind of look like, yeah, I am kind of doughy, aren't I? That's, uh, that's not good. He didn't have a right to tell me that. And so my instinctive response was to be angry, right? Somebody you don't know comes up to you in Walmart and says, hey, fatty, you need some help with that? The guy could be Arnold Schwarzenegger. He could have a PhD in uh, physiokinesiology, and I'm going to be, get away from me. He didn't have the ability to tell me anything because he doesn't earn the right to speak into my life on that subject. And it was really a struggle not to say, hey, why don't you take your little gloves and go away from me? <laughs> but I know that as a pastor, there's somebody in there from this church looking at me and going, hmm, how's he going to respond here? So I'm like, let me tell you what... No, thank you. So Paul takes this next section and he establishes to these Galatians that he has the right, he has earned the privilege to speak into their lives. Now, part of it, the difficulty, if you kind of listened as Molly read that, we have one side of a conversation. Paul is defending himself and we don't really know exactly what's being said from the other side. But we can take from his side of the conversation and put some things together. One is they're accusing him of being a man pleaser. They're saying, okay, Paul is going around Galatia telling people that all they have to do to be saved is call on the name of the Lord. He's saying that so that he can build up a crowd. He's cut out of the part of the gospel where you need to be circumcised. He's cut out the part of the gospel where you need to attend certain festivals. He's cut out of the part of the gospel that you need to obey the law because he's just trying to please people. And it's hard to please people if you're telling them, well, to get saved, here's the list, rolling it out. You do this and then add Jesus to it and then you can get to heaven. And so the people who are accusing Paul are saying, he's trying to please men so he's cut that important stuff out. Also, they're saying that Paul is not really an apostle. We read on the very first time that we talked about this that in the book of Acts, after Judas commits suicide, that what happens is, is the disciples get together, they cast lots, they, they choose Matthias to, to come and be the next apostle. Paul is not really an apostle. He's made this name up for himself. It's easy for people to walk around and say, Hi, I'm Apostle Tom, and just... Give yourself that title. And so that's what Paul has done. You can give yourself titles all day long and it doesn't mean anything. I could come in here and say, I've decided that I'm now the king of the universe and so you all have to do what I tell you to do. And it doesn't matter if I think it's true or not because all of you would go, yeah, whatever. And they would move on. And so they're saying Paul's not actually an apostle. They're also saying kind of in that same vein that Paul's got his message from second hand. That... The disciples have told him some of it. He's gotten some of it from over here, some of it from over there. He doesn't actually know what the gospel is. He's gotten it secondhand. And so this entire section is Paul's attempt to defend himself against those accusations. So that was the introduction. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this text. As, Lord, as Paul is preparing 
his audience for the message. And we are now in the, the third week of what feels like introduction. God, I, I pray that you would help me to show the wondrous, beautiful things that are in this text. Lord, that this wouldn't just be a lesson or a class, but God, that we would walk out of this room on this cold, wet, rainy day in flu-ridden Alabama, that we would leave this room more like Jesus than when we got here. And Lord, this would have an impact on us and the way that we present the gospel, the way that we speak into people's lives. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So each one of those accusations that Paul is being told, that he's a man-pleaser, that he's not a true apostle, and that he's getting his gospel secondhand, Paul takes those questions on. And the first one is, is Paul a man-pleaser? Well, that whole anathema thing would have undermined the fact that Paul was just trying to get along with people. If I'm just trying to get along with people and get everybody to like me, cursing somebody and saying, you are set aside for destruction by God ain't the way to do it. And so Paul does that. Paul says that he, it says in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul establishes that there's no other gospel, there's no other name given among men whereby a man can be saved other than the name Jesus. That everybody that gets to heaven must come through the work of Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me doesn't matter how a per- sincere a person is. To go back to my analogy, if I sincerely, truly, with all my heart believe that I can fly, if I jump off the top of this building, I'm going to go splat. We are dealing with objective facts. And so, Paul is not trying to please anybody. If he was, he wouldn't be anathematizing, he wouldn't be cursing the people that speak against the gospel. Paul says in his rebuttal, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of God. Last week we looked deeply at that verse and we saw that Paul is living his life as we should be living our lives For that well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what drives us. We don't work for anything else. And so Paul is saying, I am not a man pleaser. And if you just look at my actions, you can see that that's not true. So what of the accusation that he received his gospel, uh, that he wasn't a true disciple? Well, let's look at how Jesus appointed the disciples. In Mark 3.14 it says, And Jesus appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So what happened with the original twelve was that Jesus chose them, selected them, spent three years with them teaching him his message. Remember, the Great Commission is, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you. 
So that message that they directly received from Jesus. And then in this aside, and this is for free, you don't have to pay for this. Notice that it says, he appointed the twelve. Why did he appoint them? So that they might be with him. That is so often a part about Christianity that we miss. We think that being Christian is about all the stuff that we do. It's, it's, here's the list of things that we have to do. We've talked about that. But there's also this idea that, that you know what, especially in church, we, we get this idea, okay, you, you, while you're a Christian, you need to work in the nursery. You need to, to help me with the hedges. And I need some, hey, we got some people over here that are going to need visiting. And we got to go over here and do this thing. And there's all this activity of things. And we get so caught up in serving God that we forget that the reason why he called us is so we'd be his people. Jesus called the twelve so that they might be with him. It's about a day-to-day relationship with Jesus. Because if it's not about that day-to-day relationship with Jesus, you're missing the point. The point's not about what we can churn out. It's not about our productivity. It's not about hitting those metrics. It's about being with someone who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Which is a very different attitude to take. Anyway, that's, that's for free. I can't go over this verse without touching that. But we see that with the original 12, Jesus selected him. He taught them, taught, selected them. He taught them. He worked into their lives. He spoke into their lives. And Paul is saying, that's exactly what happened to me. In Galatians 1-11, For I would have you know, my brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like the original twelve. Paul got the gospel directly from Jesus. He was on the road uh, to Emmaus. There's a blinding light. Jesus himself appears to him. We were talking today in the, uh, in the prayer meeting and, and about how Jesus spoke directly to Paul. And we were uh, saying, well, that it was because Paul himself is one of the apostles. It required that face-to-face contact with Jesus. It says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. So just like the apostles spent three years with Jesus and got his message, so did Paul. The exact same scenario that the original 12 happened, that's how Paul got his gospel directly from Jesus. Sprinkled throughout the gospel, the the epistles will read things like, When Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, Paul, as an apostle, wasn't there on the night that Jesus died. And yet he tells the Corinthian church, I will bring to you the same message that Jesus delivered to me that on the night when he died. So the reason why Paul knows what happened in that upper room was not because he was there like the other apostles. He didn't get that message because the other apostles said, oh yeah, then this one thing happened just before Jesus died. No, Paul had that message because Jesus himself sat down and told him the story. So Paul's message is coming directly from Jesus, just like the other apostles. And so we see, as we study the book of Galatians, and we dig deeply into the book of Galatians, that the message that he brings, that the way that he preaches, the things that he teaches, come directly from Jesus, just like the other disciples. He doesn't want the Galatian church to think that Paul's getting it secondhand. And so he, in this text, establishes his 
authority, his ability to speak into their lives. Unlike the dude who truthfully pointed out that I'm a little fluffy, that guy didn't have a right to speak into my life about my fatness. However, Paul is showing the Galatian church that he has a right to speak into their life about their lostness. Now, here's been my struggle this week. And I, you kind of may have picked up on it in the prayer. Is that Paul is going to take the first, really, chapter and a half establishing his right to be able to speak into them. And it's really introduction. It's not an introduction like we get in the other uh, Pauline epistles where Paul you know, starts out and says, I'm praying for you, I love you, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. But it's an, it's an introduction nonetheless. And so sometimes it's easy for us to just kind of skim over that and pretend that doesn't have anything to say to us. But there are some things that I want us to see in this. And one of them we saw in the Penn and Teller thing is that it's important that we establish the right to speak into somebody's life. The Bible tells us that they will know that you're believers by your love. Does it say that they're going to know we're believers because of our t-shirts? Does it say that they're going to know that we're believers because of our little, little Jesus fish on the back of our car? Does it say that they're going to know that we're believers because uh, we carry our King James Bible with us? It says they'll know that we're believers by our love for one another. Now here in that, in that video that we watched, there was a very short interaction that this person had with this guy and he was able to show him that he cared. You can't speak into somebody's life until they know that you care. That your motivation to speak to them isn't to get a spiritual notch on your belt, but that you care about them. I've often said to some of you as you've come to me and said, hey, I've got this friend of mine who's lost, he's doing this, that, and the other thing, and I just want to know how to get him to, to live right. And I've said... Human beings aren't projects. It's not your job to be their Holy Spirit. It's not your job to be their mama. It's your job to love them and to point out to them where their life is going to take them. But you can't fix anybody. When Ann and I first got to Turkey, I was exposed to this statistic. And the average time that it takes for a person who's a Muslim to go from the first time they hear the gospel to the time that they get saved is about 13 years. 13 years. That you have to meet somebody, you have to establish a relationship, you have to earn the right to be able to speak the gospel into their lives. We had the benefit in our culture of the fact that lots of things about our culture already point to Christianity. So some of that background work is already done. I mean, you can, you can watch TV and there's, even if you listen to Penn, who is an atheist, he says he's an atheist. If you listen to it, there were lots of biblical language that he used that he just doesn't even know that it's biblical language. He doesn't even know that that's what it is. And I hear people say that all the time. Whenever you hear somebody say that something's awesome, that's a biblical term. That's a term, something is full of awe. Someone is full of awe. When we, we use biblical language all the time, so that our culture kind of has these background things in it of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that I can just walk up to somebody and hit them in the head with my Bible and tell them they're going to hell. It means that I have to earn the right to speak into their life, to love them. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I never open my mouth and tell them about Jesus. And so there has to be a balance there. And we see that here in the book of Galatians and Paul. He's telling them 
how he has earned the right, what he has done. And the point of all that is, he says, in this particular little text, and they glorified God because of me. That when the apostles and the disciples were exposed to the testimony that Paul had, they glorified God because of me. They didn't glorify Paul. They didn't say what an awesome person he is. They didn't glorify Barnabas for being the one that spoke into Paul's life. But they glorified God because of him. I shared with you guys a couple of years ago, so some of you may not have heard the story. When I was... Uh, in uh, the Marine Corps, I was stationed at Camp Lejeune, and one Fourth of July, I uh, decided that we were going to go to a concert um, in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and uh, Ziggy Marley was opening for the B-52s. I had never even heard of the B-52s. I was going to hear Ziggy Marley, uh, and so we show up to this concert, and in the midst of the concert, uh, once the B-52s came out, a fight broke out. And it was an open admission uh, concert. And so there were chairs being flung everywhere. In fact, the way that they ended up arresting us was they came in the back door. um, (laughs) The policemen did. They interlocked riot shields and pushed us all into a corner. And then they, they opened up those riot shields and let one person out at a time. And so when it came my turn to get let out, I was a little punchy. And so uh, I continued the struggle and I ended up getting into a tussle. And some of those law enforcement officials helped me to the ground. And they, they shared some words of wisdom with me and shared with me how it would be a much brighter decision for me to go ahead and put these zip ties on and wait in this bus that they had brought up and then see the constable the next day. They're very polite about the way that they did it, and I deserved it. And a, a few of them shared with me their shoe size as they, they kicked me a few times, and, and we, we had a good little conversation. And so I, I ended up spending that, that night in jail, and um, one of the things that is not a fun activity, I shared with the, the guys when I preached in CR last Sunday, uh, one of the things that, about my life that's interesting is it's always fun to sit down with a pastor search committee and kind of walk through your arrest record. Um, and kind of say, okay, this is what happened here, and, and this is what happened here. About 10 years later, I was at seminary, um, and I was sitting, and I was taking a Greek class, and I was taking a Greek class from a very difficult professor, and I was sitting in a room with a group of guys that we were all getting ready for a test, a vocab test, and we had our flashcards, and we were quizzing each other, and we were going over these, these difficult-to-pronounce Difficult to understand Greek words. And uh, we took a break, and I'm sitting across from a guy, and I look at him, and I said, while we're taking the break, you know, I'm drinking a Dr. Pepper, and I say, uh, I said, so where are you from? And he says, I'm from Virginia Beach. And I said, well, that's funny. I'm going to jail in Virginia Beach. And that's not normally a conversation you have at seminary, but it's a conversation that we had. And uh, I said, hey, that's funny. He goes, well, I was a cop in Virginia Beach. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he's like, no, no, I, I was in the own law enforcement for 13 years before God called me to preach. And I'm like, wow, well, I, that's amazing. And I said, so I went to jail at a Ziggy Marley B-52s concert. And he goes, I worked that concert. 
He's like, I, you were a part of the fight. And I'm like, yes. And, and he's like, that's amazing. And I said, hey, I was one of the guys that when you let us out, kind of... Um, Kind of struggled a little bit, and, and when I was let out, I grabbed a guy, and I grabbed him by his badge, and I tore the front of his shirt. Those of you who are in law enforcement can tell that that made him very happy. And he goes, that was me! <laughs> and so here we are in seminary together, and I'm like, you beat me good! And he's like, yes, I did, you loser! And so we're having this conversation in seminary across Greek vocab cards. And both of us, the cop and the loser, God had saved. Now, there is nothing but shame in the way that I acted. Nothing but embarrassment that I acted the fool that way. But God took that moment of my stupidity, my drunkenness, my ignorance... And here, 10 years forward, used it to glorify himself. Now, if I'd lied and covered that up and, been, and, 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 and not admitted the fact that it was from that kind of a world that God saved me, I would have missed the opportunity for God to be glorified and me be able to say, even an idiot like me, God can save. And so here, me and that copper sitting across from each other, dancing on clouds, praising Jesus, because both of us were lost, bound to the same hell that night, and God saved both of us. And so God gets the glory. And when I do sit down with the pastor search committee and, and walk through an arrest record, I can say, and such were some of you before the glorious grace and gospel of Jesus Christ came. And here we see Paul who admits that he's the chief of sinners. That God not only saved him, God's using him in the life of these Galatian believers to speak truth. That not only could God save a loser reprobate like me, but he can use me to speak truth into your lives. God can use you no matter what you've done, no matter where you are in your spiritual walk. God can use you. You are uniquely gifted to speak into people's lives in a way that I never will be able to, get to, to speak into their lives. There are people who will listen to you that won't listen to me. There are people that you know that I'll never meet. There are ways that God wants to use you and you think I can't do that because of all of my sin, because of all the things that I've done, because of my shyness, because of my loudness, whatever it is. And I'm telling you that what this text is telling me is that those chains are broken. God wants to use you. He didn't just save you to sit in a pew. He didn't just save you to go amen and sing a song. He saved you to put you to work. And so you are unshackled from the fetters of your past life. That Paul was put to work. And so, where we find ourselves today is in a world that says, believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I'll believe, and we'll all be happy. 
And I think what this text is telling us, we don't have the luxury to do that. The people around you, living around you, desperately need to see Jesus in you. They desperately need you to pray for them. I have never in my life, well, I say twice in my life, I've had someone say, no, I don't want you to pray for me. It is extremely rare. In fact, I, we have been on more than one occasion in the, the surgical center there at, at Gadsden Regional and gone to visit one of our members' families, prayed for them, and finished praying, said, amen, well, we're going to head on. And somebody sitting over there that I don't even know say, hey, you got some of that for us? We could sure use some prayer. You don't have to be a theologian to see somebody hurting and say, hey, can I pray for you? You don't have to be able to, to, to rattle off a bunch of Bible verses to, to be able to, sh- to see somebody in need and meet that need. Love somebody to Christ. But realize that your past, those chains are broken. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know, I know there are people in this room that think they, can't, they have nothing to give. God, I pray that just as we see from the chief of sinners, Paul, that he had the right to speak into the life of the Galatians. Lord, I pray that you will show that person who's thinking they have nothing to give that in your strength they can be a mighty warrior for your kingdom. Lord, as we open this altar, I pray if there's anybody in this room that's lost, Lord, that you would save them. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's living in sin, God, that they would confess that sin. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's looking for a church home, that they would join with us. In Jesus' name, amen.